Um, turn with me to the end of 1 Peter. So near the end of the New Testament, if you get to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. But we are going to do all of chapter 5 uh, today. So we are in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. Uh, John prayed earlier for Deb Williams. Um, uh, she is on a medical mission trip. She's a nurse to Bolivia. So uh, and how long has she gone for? Uh, two weeks. So you need to be praying for Deb and for her team for the next two weeks. And uh, we appreciate that. I'm sure she would appreciate that as well. So 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 14 Please listen carefully as this is God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us one more time to the book of 1 Peter to learn about Christ and how he wants us to live. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit and grant us that humility without which no one can understand your truth and no one can understand their own lives. These are words about leading and resisting and suffering, and we need them more than ever. So open our eyes to see them, our ears to hear them, and to understand them, and to believe them, and to walk in them. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning, and help us consider what it means to embrace humility as it is found in you. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus 
For in his name we pray, amen and amen. This changes everything. This, D-I-S, changes everything. You see, with this, obey becomes disobey. Respect is changed to disrespect. Regard is suddenly disregard. What was an ability is now a disability. Engage becomes disengage, and grace is transformed into disgrace, all because of this. We'd be hard-pressed to find a more potent trio of letters, and we'd be hard-pressed to find a better example of their power than the word appointment. Most of us like appointments. Even the organizationally challenged among us like appointments. See, appointments create a sense of predictability in an unpredictable world. And down deep, we know we control the future as much as a caboose controls the train, but making an appointment gives us the illusion that we're in control. And then disappointments remind us that we're not. A disappointment is a missed appointment. What we hoped would happen didn't. We wanted health. We got disease. We wanted retirement. We got reassignment. We wanted family. We got a divorce. We wanted a promotion. We got dismissed. Now what? What do we do with our disappointments? We could do what Miss Haversham did, if you remember her, three of you. Um, those of you who have read Great Expectations by Charles Dickens will know that Miss Haversham was jilted by her fiancé just prior to the wedding. Her appointment became a missed appointment and then a disappointment. And how did she respond? Not so well. She closed all the blinds in her house, stopped every clock, left the wedding cake on the table to gather cobwebs, continued to wear her wedding dress until it hung in yellow decay around her shrunken frame. Her disappointment wounded her heart and ended up consuming her life. We could, of course, follow that route, or we could follow the example of the Apostle Paul, his goal was to be a missionary in Spain. But rather than send Paul to Spain, however, God sent him to prison. And sitting in a Roman jail, Paul could have quit out of disappointment. But he didn't. Instead, he said, as long as I'm here, I might as well write a few letters. And hence, your Bible has the epistles to Philemon, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. No doubt, Paul would have done a great work in Spain, but would it have compared to the impact of those four letters? My guess is most of you, and most of you online, have sat where Paul sat. Probably not, possibly not in a physical prison, but more likely in an emotional prison of disappointment. For a lot of you, I know that you have. You are hotter than a $2 pistol on the trail to Spain. 
or college or marriage or independence. And then came the layoff, pregnancy, the sick parent. And you ended up in an emotional prison of disappointment. So long, Spain. Hello, Rome. So long, appointment. Hello, disappointment. Hello, pain. Well, obviously, the Apostle Paul knew that, but do you think Peter knew that? I don't think anyone knew that, knows that better than Peter. If you remember, Peter had a history of blowing it even before he denied Jesus. In Matthew, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus when he told uh, Peter about his coming crucifixion. And in Matthew 16, we read, But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How's that for a personal rebuke from the Son of God? Peter understands disappointment. He understands hurt feelings. He understands personal pain. And that's why he's writing to these people who are exiles, aliens, strangers, who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Because he knows what they're going through. You'll remember that Peter has been teaching us how to live together as exiles in a cultural context that's hostile to the gospel and yet we're still to be bearing witness to Christ he's been saying the same things to the church under hardship in his own context addressing various groups various categories of people back in chapter 2 he talked about Christians and civil society talked about slaves and masters in chapter 3 husbands and wives he spoke about how we're to care for one another within the church, how we're to respond to those outside the church who ask us for a reason for the hope that we have within us, but we're to respond with gentleness and respect. And in our passage today, beginning in chapter 5, he speaks to the leaders of the church, but all the principles he lays out apply equally to every member of the church. At the end of Chapter 4, he said, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering looms large here. It casts its shadow over all of 1 Peter. And so to the people who are just plain struggling with life or to the people who simply have a bad attitude about life, Peter has three things to say. And we have the first one here in verses 1 through 5, and that is humbling service. Humbling service. It says there, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Just as an aside, the younger elders there is not age, but spiritual maturity. 
Um, so he writes this letter. We've come to the end, and suffering is still on his mind as he gets here to chapter 5. And there's a little conjunction at the very beginning, so. In verse 1 he says, so, because of all the stuff I said in chapter 4 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 2, so I exhort the elders. Which means that in light of the reality of suffering, that's a universal pattern in the church, there is a special exhortation needed for leaders because they've become targets for the kind of trials that are normal among God's people. And uh, as I said, Peter has learned these principles from having uh, lived with Jesus, from having humbly served with Jesus. And if you remember what Jesus said about serving, Matthew 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said that even he came to serve others. So Peter tells them, the, the people he's writing to, that we are to start serving, not as a means to get uh, something out of it, but as a means of serving God. You serve others as a means of serving God. We find that throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, one example is in Hebrews 6. It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. However, as we all know, saying it and doing it are two different things. So just how do you do this service thing? Well, Peter's concerned here not just for what elders do, but for how they do it and why they do it. Look again at what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma. His comments in this passage, he says, the three negative attitudes might be summarized as love of praise, love of profit, and love of power. And I think that's helpful. Love of praise, love of profit, love of power. Those are the things that elders are not to be motivated by. We're not to be driven by the love of praise. We are to shepherd not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not according to the prevailing attitudes of your peers, not to get the praise of your congregation, not according to the whims and moods of the culture, to get the praise from the culture, certainly not driven by uh, any desire to be appraised uh, by people, to be approved by people. But it says, but doing it as God would have you. God sets the terms. He wants us to be servants who care for the flock of God. It's his flock. We're not to be driven by the love of praise. We're not to be driven by the love of profit. It says not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, God has blessed Potomac Hills with men of integrity and generosity to be your elders, and I am proud to serve among them. 
but it is not hard to find cases in the wider church of spiritual abuse where leaders have leveraged uh, their position to their own gain for praise, profit, or power. Now Peter tells us in verse 3, leaders are serving not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And most of you know that I served a number of years in the army, and one of the biggest lessons I heard over and over again in the army was you are to lead by example. Again, that sounds good, but what does it mean? What does it look like? Well, you have uh, to have your people see you doing the things that you're asking them to do if they are going to become willing to do those things. I remember hearing General John Wickham, and uh, he told the story about this. At the time I heard him tell it, he was chief of staff of the Army, four stars. He was the number one guy in the Army. But he told the story about when he was a brand-new second lieutenant. And uh, at the time, I had a hard time imagining him as a second lieutenant, um, But he had arrived, his first assignment, he got his new platoon, and he did not know how to sight in and prepare and use one of his platoon's heavy weapons. And it is a fairly difficult task. And training on this particular weapon was on the training schedule for the next week. And so his platoon sergeant, usually a sergeant first class, this was a wise, mature, experienced soldier, took him out behind the latrine where it was really dirty and smelly and set up these heavy weapons. And for the entire afternoon, he trained this new lieutenant in using this weapon until he knew how to do it perfectly. Now, the training makes a lot of sense, but why behind the latrine? Well, the sergeant knew that there was a screen window about head high that ran along the back wall. This took place in Korea. And uh, so every time one of the men in that platoon went to the latrine, they would look out and see their new lieutenant training on that weapon all afternoon. Long enough so the sergeant knew that every single man went to the latrine and looked out the screen and saw the lieutenant training. So when it came time the next week to train on that weapon, guess which platoon in the battalion did the best? That's right, the platoon with the new second lieutenant. The example had been set, and the men responded to it. And General Wickham said he learned how to lead by example from a wise old platoon sergeant. It's not that much different when it comes to service. Peter knew the right way to serve because he had learned it from Jesus, and you can look that up in John chapter 13. So first you start with humbling service. Second, Peter tells us to accept humbling troubles. If you're following along in the outline, that's the second blank there, humbling troubles. Picking up second part of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There is a ton of stuff here in these five verses. I could preach several sermons uh, just on these verses, but not today. So I'm actually going to take them in reverse order. Satan first, then humility. Those are the two main topics. You see, Peter tells us that Satan is not some imaginary being who shows up on Halloween. As most of you know, I'm not a big fan of Halloween for multiple reasons, but one of which is the diminishing of Satan, making him out to be a harmless creature who's merely annoying. But the Bible tells us that he is the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. Satan is real, he is evil, he is deceptive, he is distracting, he hates what God loves, and since God loves you, guess what? You are on his hate list. Peter says he is your great enemy. He says your adversary is seeking someone to devour. You want to personalize it, put your name in there. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking Frank or Mark or Ron or Tom to devour. Now I put the elders' names in there because leaders in the church are at the top of his list. Because if Satan can make them fall, it hurts everyone here. So pray for your elders. Paul uh, describes the devil uh, in his writing as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, suggesting the immediate inspiration for evil is as close and as penetrating as the air we breathe. It's like a cloud of pollution hanging over the city. The kingdom of the air reigns over his followers. His spirit, Ephesians 2 says, is now at work in those who are disobedient. Yet the devil's ability to incarnate itself into the physical world is an indication of his weakness. The demonic is limited to deception, is denied incarnation. The devil can infiltrate, but cannot embody the word was made flesh, John 1.14. But the devil remains disincarnate, incapable of assuming what he did not create. Not that we should take him lightly. Today you hear a lot of talk about people from people about taking on Satan. They write like he was an opponent in a corporate merger. Friends, that is foolishness. Satan is a brilliant opponent. He knows every single one of your weaknesses, and he knows just when to strike. Venturing out to attack him is like an infantryman going hand-to-hand -hand with a tank. The Bible says resist him, firm in your faith. That's a crucial sentence. You must be strong in your faith. You must trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart if you are going to stand firm against the evil one. Because if you try to do that in your own strength, you're going to get rolled. 
But when you trust in Christ for your defense and you depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to resist him, you will overcome his attacks because Christ has already defeated him. But how do you resist him? How do you stand firm? Let's take a look at the sin that Peter brings out as the thing you have to resist if you're going to resist the powers of Satan and the forces of darkness in your life. He says, going back to verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is one of those sins that we all suffer from and never talk about. Pride opens you up to evil. And even though it's just dealt with briefly here, there is a tremendous amount of wisdom in this verse because this is a problem we all deal with. Pride is defined here as resistance to the grace of God. Pride is that which refuses the grace of God. Pride blocks the grace of God. It says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace then doesn't flow to the proud. Pride blocks it. Pride is by its very nature anti-grace. That's what it is. Let me show you. There are two basic forms of pride. And the way to find out what those two uh, forms of pride are is to give the gospel of God's grace to people for years and years and years and see what their responses are. Because there's only three kinds of responses. People can receive it, that's positive, or they can reject it, but there are two ways that people reject it. And that reveals the two kinds of pride. So you give them the gospel, which, simply put, is that Jesus Christ uh, died my death, the death I should have died, lived my life, the life I should have lived, and therefore, because of who he is and what he has done, uh, I ask that he welcome me into his kingdom. I believe in him. I receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, uh, as he is offered in the gospel. That's one of our membership vows. And when I do that, I know that all the value of his life and death is now granted to me. That is a quick, basic definition of the gospel. However, people reject it all the time. And they reject it in one of two ways. But they're not that different. One group basically says, that's insulting. We're modern people. I'm not that bad and God's not that mad. I live a pretty good life. In other words, I don't need God's grace I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. The other way people reject the gospel is to say, that's too easy. I know I'm not what I should be, but I need to earn it. It can't be that easy. Another version of that might sound like, you know, I am terrible, just like you said. But if God knew what I'd, I have done, he could never accept me. I have to work at it. I have to make restitution. I have to clean myself up. I can't come to him like this. So on one hand, grace is rejected because people are saying, I'm too good. I don't need grace. And on the other hand, grace is rejected because people are saying, I'm too bad. Grace isn't good enough for me. But they're both forms of pride because pride is anything that resists the grace of God. So feelings of superiority or feelings of inferiority are both filled with pride because they both resist the grace of God. In both cases, they're saying, I need to earn it. 
The only difference is that one group thinks they are, and the other group knows they're not. But in the end, they're the same. They're both self-centered. They're both saying, it all depends on me. And notice in our text, it says, and this is striking, God opposes the proud. Pride sets you on a collision course with God. I think it also sets you on a collision course with everyday life. Pride is going to make you hurt. It's going to give you hurt feelings. It's going to give you personal pain. You are always going to be annoyed and envious of people who are doing better than you are because you're always comparing yourself. You're always looking at yourself. There is a constant self-absorption. Pride can take the form of inferiority. It can take the form of superiority. But humility is very different. Humility takes a completely different form. C.S. Lewis once said, I think Tim Keller has made it popular, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. A humble person is satisfied with the grace of God. And so they're satisfied with their standing, their position. They're not thinking about themselves. Our responsive reading this morning, Philippians 2, put the interests of others above our own. And so you have the example of humble service You have the acceptance of humbling troubles. Finally, we have the exercise of humbling grace. The exercise of humbling grace, starting at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, notice how he assumes suffering. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the letter could have ended there. But then he says, by Silvanus, also called Silas, faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, which is Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, and him verse that nobody in America likes. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You know, the best teachers I've had, the best professors I've had in seminary and my doctoral program were those who had been out in the church on the mission field. They knew what it was like to constantly work with people as sinful as you and me. And face it, we can be pretty bad sometimes. But those guys made the best teachers because they've been there. And I think Peter is a lot like that. Peter's not writing about some theory. He's writing about his life. He's writing out of his experience. Peter has written about suffering and hardship and difficulty because he's lived through all that. And now he's at the end of his letter. What does he end with? What is his grand conclusion? End of verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that the grace of God is with you no matter what happens. 
Peter knows what he's talking about. If you remember on the night of his betrayal, Peter was the guy with the sword who cut off another man's ear. And Jesus put the ear back on, something that guy never forgot. And of course, Peter was the sage who said, Matthew 26, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And of course, he did three times. But who did God select to be the primary spokesman for the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to establish the church? Who had the privilege of preaching that first sermon when 3,000 people came to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Peter couldn't do anything right in Acts chapter 2. Who did God choose to be the preacher when he opened wide the door of salvation to the Gentiles? Peter at the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Who made the decisive argument at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, taking a stand for grace against the legalists who were threatening the church? And again, it was Peter. The story doesn't end there. God also chooses Peter to be the inspired writer of two books of the New Testament. And most people know that the book of Mark is actually based on Mark's relationship with Peter. As he, we read here, so does Mark, my son. Is it any wonder that Peter can write about the God of all grace? Peter has personally experienced the God of all grace, as Paul described in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's what Peter experienced. His sins abounded, no question about it. But however much his sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. God blessed Peter, not in spite of his sins and not without regard for his sins. That's the way grace operates. It looks not to our sins or even to our good deeds, but only to the merits of Christ. You know, most of us at one time or another can identify with Peter. Regardless of how outwardly uh, successful in the Christian life we might look uh, to others in our hearts, we know the truth. We know that in one way or another, we're a lot like Peter. We have blown it, we have fallen on our spiritual faces uh, far too many times. And just like Peter, we need to be convinced way down deep inside that God is the God of all grace. That he is going to bless us and use us, not according to what we deserve, but as one author said, according to his infinite goodness and sovereign purpose. And that means that suffering, which is assumed in this letter, will not be the last note of your life. If you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, he will exalt you soon enough. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We will suffer, and we will be restored from all our brokenness, confirmed against all our uncertainty, strengthened from all our weakness, and established in glory by our God. In the place of our suffering will be a never-ending experience of the greatest joy you've ever known or tasted. 
As Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, at the end of our text, we have the verse that Western people don't like. Peter commands us, he's really telling us to stick together. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. We don't do that very much. Mark does, but like nobody else. The kiss of love is, is uh, physically, it's the ritual touch of cheeks, not lips, sort of like if we all lived in France. Furthermore, the kiss was given from uh, man to man or woman to woman, but not man to woman. In the empire, the Roman Empire, the kiss of greeting was common when friends and family reunited. The kiss demonstrated friendship and kinship and affection. The Ephesian elders kissed Paul when they saw him for the last time, Acts 20. In Jesus' parable, uh, the father kisses the prodigal son, Luke 15. But a Pharisee proves he has no love for Jesus when he offers no kiss, and Jesus calls him on it, Luke 7, when a woman comes and kisses his feet. And the guy says, how can you let her do that? And he says, well, I came here, and you didn't anoint me, and you didn't give me a kiss, and she is. The command to greet everyone, or to greet one another with a kiss of love, reminds us of Peter's emphasis on love, for God's household. Love is our primary disposition and a sign of our solidarity. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And since love's supposed to show itself in unity, 1 Peter 3.8, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart and a humble mind. It also heals relationships, 1 Peter 4. Eight, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In every chapter, Peter emphasizes the need to love one another. And he closes his letter with that. It's a reminder to, to love one another. It's not just a customary greeting. It's because we love each other. There's one more truth I, I want us to see. It comes from actually the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know what your greatest need is right now. Is it contentment in a difficult situation? The apostle would say to you, be content in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is uh, patience in a trying circumstance. He would say then be patient in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Whatever your need, you can experience the reality of God's promise. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that means the God of all grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for all your needs, regardless of the severity of your need. You will never exhaust the supply of God's grace. It will always be there for you every day to appropriate as much as you need for whatever that need is. God cares for his people from beginning to end through all circumstances. We are not relying on an unsympathetic God, one who is distant or emotionally uninvolved. 
You know, Peter has systematically displayed the many ways in which God cares for his people. If we go through the whole book, Peter lists them for us. Chapter 1, verse 3, God has caused us to be born again to a new hope, a living hope. Verse 4, God has given us an inheritance. Verse 5, God guards us. Verse 9, he grants us the salvation of our souls. Verse 18, he ransoms us from futile way of life. Chapter 2, he builds us up, verse 5. Verses 8 and 9, he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10, he makes us his people and he gives us his mercy. Verse 21, God suffered for us, providing us an example that we might follow in his steps. Chapter 4, God allows us to take part in the glory of Christ. And here in chapter 5, in these verses, God gives us an unfading crown of glory. It says he cares for us, and he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And in the face of this litany of ways that God cares for us, Peter asks us to cast our anxieties on God. It's the ultimate act of humility. Now, this is not cast like you're out fishing with a fishing line. This is cast like you're out fishing with a fishing net where you cast it out over the water. We are to be humble because God cares for us. We are to display our humility by casting our anxieties on him. When we're overcome with uncertainty, all of us, we're all tempted to try to figure out figure it out on our own, figure out our own way out of it. We may believe that God cannot carry our burdens, but how comforting it is to know that he is there, he is infinitely caring, and he is commanding us to cast, to throw those anxieties on him. Beloved, know that God can. Moreover, God wants you to cast your anxieties on him. He wants to carry your burden. So for the love of God, let him. The testimonies of the Bible about pain and suffering and the consequences of sin, these are not mathematical formulas for rational understanding. They are constant proclamations about the God who rules and loves. They are constant reminders to cast our cares upon him. God wants us to put our hope in him Verses 10 and 11, this week they became one of my favorite passages because it gives us hope. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a perseverance passage. This is a glorification passage. This is a hope passage. First Peter began with hope, and it ends with hope. Peter is tying hope to a God who is at work and who will complete his work. All of the things that Peter has called believers to do, all of the hope they are to have as they do them, are tied to this God and his unrelenting commitment of grace to his people. And notice, Peter doesn't give an unrealistic, overly rosy view of life. He's not denying reality here. He acknowledges that the saints will suffer. 
But even in the darkest of moments, there is someone wonderful at work, doing something eternally important that will end in glory. There is no better rock of hope than God's enduring work and its final culmination in glory. Suffering isn't ultimate. God is. Discouragement isn't Lord. God is. Weakness isn't king. God is. And failure doesn't rule. God does. And hope in his work now and the stunning beauty of what is to come will never disappoint you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I will close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to see your grace in our lives. Sometimes we still act as people who think we have to do it all by ourselves. And yet you promise to be the God of all grace. Grant that we may live as people who reflect your grace, your hope, and your love, even towards those who difficulty and hardship, uh, they bring that into our lives and work in each of our hearts. As we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, as those who have been called to his eternal glory in Christ. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one whose grace is sufficient and who promises to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.